Well, hey, I, I uh, alluded to it um, when I was doing announcements, but we have a guest uh, pastor today bringing God's word. He's uh, somebody that I've just uh, recently had the chance to get acquainted with. He's a teaching pastor at a church, uh, an EV Free Church, just like ours, out in Beaumont. Oh, it's nice and cool out there, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> Woo! And so, uh, you know what? Um, his church has allowed us the opportunity, allowed him to come on over and share with us as we continue to uh, try to make sure that we fill the pulpit with godly men who are gifted at bringing God's word. And so, would you do me a favor and welcome up Mark uh, with a good foothills welcome. Mark, come on up, man. Do you mind if we just start off with a word of prayer, then we'll jump into the message this morning. Father God, oh, what awesome words we just sang. Crowned in glory forever and ever, from glory to glory. Holy is the Lord. Father, we thank you for those words. And as we take some time this morning just to focus on the beauty and the majesty and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would speak your words this morning, that we would not just worship you as we sing, but that our time in the word would be an act of worship this morning as well, as we just seek to make much of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thank you for allowing me to come and to share the word with you. It is good to be here. Uh, it's always refreshing to kind of go worship with a different worship team. And these guys are awesome, by the way. Yes, that's appropriate. Uh, and it was just amazing to be able to just come and to be uh, just worship along with you. Uh, you can tell, even in a time of transition, God is at work in this church, and it's exciting uh, to be a part of it. I have one goal this morning. My goal this morning is just simply to make much of Christ. And that's it, all right? Are you okay with that? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through one of the most lofty passages about who Jesus is. And it's deep theology, it's great stuff, but I, what I want you to see this morning is that ideas like the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is the most important, that they don't just belong in this file cabinet drawer of theology, that I hope you see this morning that really the supremacy of Christ, the importance of Christ is so important in each of our lives. As a matter of fact, you can think of it this way, that the most important Thing about you is that you understand that Jesus is the most important. <laughs> the most important thing about each of us is that we understand that Jesus is the most important. Now, the way I've understood this, you're, you're going down Route 66, right? And you've just finished the 39 books of the Old Testament. Way to go, by the way. That's quite impressive that you stuck with it through, you know, Leviticus and Haggai and all that stuff. You made it. Way to go. And now we're in this kind of time of a rest stop. You're taking a couple of weeks to just catch your breath. I kept thinking about a rest stop where you've been driving for a while and you pull off the road. You just get out of the car, you stretch, you take a deep breath, and then you get back in the car and you keep going. And I thought, what would be appropriate when you've gone through the Old Testament, you're in this rest period before you get onto the on-ramp and start taking on the books of the New Testament? Let's just look at Jesus. And here's why. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament reveals Jesus. And so what an awesome opportunity to just 
take some time at this rest stop, pull off the road, and let's just look at Jesus and make much of him. Actually, we're told in the book of Hebrews to run the race, to live the Christian life, fixing our eyes where? On Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. This is what we're called to do. But so many times we run the race losing sight of Jesus. I, I, I was reminded of this, of all places, watching a YouTube video, and I have a little confession here. I was in my office watching football highlights on YouTube. I, maybe I should repent of this. I'm not, all right, thank you, thank you. Um, one thing you need to know, I grew up in East Tennessee, just next to Knoxville, and I lost my accent years ago, but I have never lost my love for Tennessee football. And, and the University of Tennessee, more, go Vols. Oh, I would say bless your hearts, but anyway. <laughs> this coming Saturday, I guarantee you, I will be dressed in all orange, yelling at my TV. But, but for a true Tennessee fan, if we want to brag, we have to go back to the 90s, okay? <laughs> and so to get in the mood for football, football season, I'll go back and watch, you know, Peyton Manning throwing touchdown passes. It just gets my blood boiling, gets me excited about football season. But, you know, YouTube has this way of there's these side videos that kind of suck you in one after the other, right? Am I the only one that's done this? No, okay, good. So I clicked on one because it caught my attention. It was high school football. And there was this running back that they gave him the ball in the backfield, and he immediately got hit. And you're thinking, this, this kid's going down. He's getting tackled. Well, he emerges from that and keeps running. But, but this is what's crazy, that somehow when he was getting tackled, that he eluded, his helmet actually got turned all the way around backwards, Okay. Now, anyone older than high school would know, if you're running with your helmet on backwards, stop running and just fall down on the ground. This kid didn't know that. He's thinking, oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> he didn't tackle me. I'm still running. He cannot see anything. And this linebacker, his eyes got this big and wide. Uh, you know, I can tell you how that ended. You can imagine this kid got nailed. But I was watching that, and I started thinking, how many times do we live the Christian life kind of like that, where we're running? But our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. And there are a lot of things in life that can happen that can cause us to lose sight of Jesus while we're running the race. I mean, sometimes crisis can do that. I mean, fill in the blank. You can, you can lose your job, a life-altering diagnosis, an untimely death of someone you love, devastation from wildfires, any of these things. Now, sometimes crises have a way of causing us to to turn to God and run to God and, and deepen our faith. But let's be honest, sometimes in crisis, we feel like our foundation has been shaken and we stop looking to Jesus. Or, or maybe it's not something dramatic like a crisis. Maybe it's just you've been a Christian, seems like forever, and it just kind of has grown stale. And you do all the right things. I mean, you read the Bible, you pray, you, you've been teaching the same class for years, you, you have a life career. I mean, you're doing all the right stuff, but... It just starts feeling empty. And what's happened is even though you're running the race, you, you, you've lost sight of Jesus. Or maybe it's just that the, the flow of our culture just seems to be leading people away from the reality of who Jesus is. I mean, if you want to see it in a microcosm, it's the classic story of the kid who you, you, the, the family and the church has discipled this kid for 18 years and you drop them off at college and four years later they've completely deserted their faith. Now that's not just true of college campuses. That's true everywhere because so much 
of our culture is moving us away from the reality of the glory and the majesty, the supremacy of Christ. I mean, that was the setting of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Paul was in a Roman prison and he's writing a letter to the church in Colossae. I, I got to be honest, the church in Colossae is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites because Paul never went there. They never saw Paul's face. He did not plant the church in Colossae. What happened? He spent three years in Ephesus and a guy there named Epaphras heard the gospel, met the Lord, went back to his hometown in Colossae, shared the gospel, people turned to Christ, and suddenly you've got this new church coming up in Colossae. It's a church plant that came out of the church of Ephesus. Well, here's Paul in prison, and Epaphras had come to him, and he explained what's going on in Colossae. And he said there there are some teachers teaching a different gospel. It's moving people away from the the reality of what you taught. And it's messing up everything. Our marriages aren't working right. People aren't being kind to each other. People are drifting away from the faith. Everything's just kind of moving away. So Paul sat down, and he wrote a letter to the Colossian church. What do you say to someone like that? What do you say to someone who's, who's being swept so that they're drifting away from the gospel? Here's how Paul started. He started by saying, you need to understand the supremacy of Jesus. And this is the most important thing you need to hear as your marriages are failing and as people aren't being kind to each other and as people are leaving the church. I want to bring you back to this point. You need to see who Jesus is. The most important thing in your life is that you know that Jesus is the most important. So we're going to look at what Paul wrote to this church. It's found in the book of Colossians. So if you'll take your Bibles or your phones I don't, is it on your app? You have the Bible on the Foothills app. There we go. Look there, the Foothills app. Colossians chapter 1. I'll give you a second to find it. Looks like most of you are there. Colossians chapter 1. As we go through this, most of this passage just makes much of Christ. It's line after line of just wonderful truths about who Jesus is. At the end, it's going to talk about how this is important in our lives. We're going to spend most of our time just highlighting Christ is the most important. And then at the end, we're going to see why this is the most important part in our lives. So let's begin in verse 15. And I'm just going to take it a phrase at a time. He is the image of the invisible God. That's where he starts. He is the image of the invisible God. You cannot see God, but when you see Jesus, you've seen the exact representation of the divine nature that for all eternity past, Jesus has existed as God the Son. He was never made. He was never created. Before anything was, there was Jesus existing as God the Son. And when he was on earth, when he could be seen, he was the revelation. He revealed the exact nature of who God is. So he begins by saying he's the image of the invisible God. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen the very nature of God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, this needs a little bit of explanation because it sounds a little confusing because it sounds like if you're the firstborn, it sounds like you were born first, as if there was a time when God the Father existed and then Jesus was born. That's not what this is saying. That was a heresy that the church dealt with way back in the early 300s of of, of dealing with, with that mindset. What it means, though, that the firstborn in biblical times meant you really were kind of the most important. Now, my older brother likes to still claim this today, but I'm trying to convince him culture's changed since then. But in this time, the firstborn 
You, you got twice the inheritance. I mean, you, you were just more important. To, to understand how this relates to Jesus, it's interesting to go back and look at Psalm 89 and verse 27. It's a long passage about King David, who, by the way, was not the firstborn. He was the, you know, the kid brother they left out in the field when, when the prophet Samuel came. But it says this about David. He said, I will make of you my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. See, this is the firstborn, the highest, the greatest. And when it says that Jesus is not just the image of the invisible God, but he's the, the firstborn of all creation and saying he, he reigns supreme over all of creation. Even the word of, when you hear the word, he's the firstborn of creation you need to think there of me in the sense of over. For example, we say the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Well, he's the commander-in-chief over the armed forces. It's, it's that sense of the word of. He is the firstborn, the highest, over all of creation. And then he goes through and explains what that means. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is why he's supreme over all of creation. Notice those three prepositional phrases. All things were made by him and through him and for him. He begins by saying all things were made by him. And it explains what it means by all things. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, the visible things that we see, also the invisible things in the spirit realm. And he talks about all the powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Now, when it talks about thrones and rulers and authorities, it's obviously talking about the, the great powerful leaders of, of, of earth, the, the powerful leaders of our time. But when you start reading of thrones and dominions, at, at this point, it's also talking about the spirit realm. And all the evil forces that would raise up against Christ, you know what? They were made by him. He reigns supremely over them. And it goes on to say, by him all things were made. They were made through him, which points back to Genesis 1, that he was the, the agent of creation. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good, this was made through Jesus. But not only was Jesus the creator, Things were made for him. Things were made for this purpose to give glory to Jesus. I mean, you can read this one verse and answer some really foundational questions about yourself. Where did I come from? Well, you were created through Christ. Why am I here? You were created for Christ to live for his glory. And suddenly you see where you came from, and what your purpose in life is just from this one small passage of Scripture. And here's the point. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the highest over all pre creation. Everything was made by him, through him, and for him. And as we keep reading, it, it, again, it's just layer on layer. It keeps going. He is before all things preexistent, and in him all things hold together. That he's not just the creator, he's not just the one that, that, that made things by him, through him, and for him, but he is also sustaining, holding the creation together. And I want to I, I back away for a second and just let us think on some of those thoughts. 
I mean, to really understand the glory and majesty of Jesus as, as the firstborn of all of creation, we have to back up and think about the immensity of his creation. I mean, when you start letting your mind just ponder the vastness of our universe, you begin to realize we don't have measurements for this. We, we make up measurements to try to understand the universe. Have you heard the phrase astronomical unit? You know what that is? What's an astronomical unit? There you go. Distance from here to 93 million miles is an astronomical unit. I mean, they just made that up, right? <laughs> A scientist somewhere. How do we measure this great distance? Well, let's just call it an astronomical unit. 93 million miles from the center of the earth to the center of the sun. And the earth revolves each year maintaining 93 million miles away from the sun. 93 million miles, an astronomical unit, that's a, that's a long way, but it's nothing compared to a light year. Again, how do we measure how far away this star is? Well, let, let's talk about light years. The speed of light travels 186,000, not miles, per hour, 186,000 miles per second. Now, in your head, can you come up with how many seconds are in a year times 186,000? I can. It's almost 6 trillion. <laughs> it's just under 6 trillion miles is one light year. And to understand the vastness of the universe, if you go out at night and you find the star Betelgeuse, it's not just a cool movie, it's a star. If you look up and see this little reddish star in the constellation Orion, you're not really seeing that star. You're seeing the light that came racing from that star at 186,000 miles per second 640 years ago. So you're seeing the light that left that star somewhere before the year 1400. Do you get the idea this is big? All things were created by him and through him and for him. And not only that, he holds all things together. Do you know why you can look up and find Orion or Betelgeuse or Polaris? Do you know why? Because Jesus is holding all things together. Do you know why the earth maintains one astronomical unit away from the sun, 93 million miles? If it were any closer, it would be too hot for life, too far away, it would be too cold for life but it stays the same distance because the Lord Jesus is holding all things together. The reason the laws of gravity are in effect and we're not floating off in the atmosphere is because the risen Lord Jesus is holding all things together. He is supreme. The reason electrons keep circling around neutrons is because Jesus is holding all things together. The reason you can hear and understand the Word of God this morning is you have these electrical synapses firing off in your brain to help you hear and understand, and that's happening because the risen Lord Jesus holds everything together. And if He were to stop... If he were just take an hour off of holding everything together, everything explodes out of control. Do, do you see what this is saying? Do you see how this points to the, the majesty and the glory of who Jesus is, the supremacy, that over all creation, he is the highest, he is the most important, he is the firstborn, he is the image of the invisible God, he created all things by him, through him, for him, he's holding all things together. 
And then it keeps getting better because as we read the next phrase, it moves beyond his role just in creation to his role in the new creation. It starts talking about Jesus' relationship with the church and his role in redemption and reconciliation. And we began to see just as all of the universe was created for this purpose, to give God glory, to bring glory to Christ, that he has also created a people, his church, that exists for the same purpose, to bring glory to God, to bring glory to Christ. Let's read this. And he is the head of the body, the church. I love this. That the one who is sustaining all of creation, the one who holds all of this is also the head of the church. And, and don't miss the metaphor, by the way. He's not the firstborn over the church. He's the head of the church. Now, when Paul talks about the church being a body, this is usually what he means, that everyone is important, everyone has a role, we all function together. Don't miss this. The head is part of the body. That Jesus is not just off in the distance looking over the church. He is part of the church. He's the head of the church. And it's through the head that we get direction and wisdom and information and and strength and empowerment. It it, it comes from the head. It comes from Christ. This is why I, I, I love seeing churches thrive in transitions. This is why you can, because Jesus is the head of the church. And every church goes through seasons where you're, 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 you lose pastors, you're in between pastors, but here's the truth of the matter, you, you never lose your head. That Jesus is the head of the church, and that's why you can thrive as a church even in seasons of transition. It all points to the glory of Christ, that he's supreme over the church. Christ is supreme. And then it, it just keeps getting better from there. He's the beginning We see this phrase again, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's the beginning. From eternity past, he's forever God the Son, coexistent with the Father for all eternity, all preexistence. We know he's the firstborn over all creation. Now we read he's the firstborn from the dead. I mean, this points to his resurrection. And if there's a place where you see Christ being exalted, where Christ, you see the supremacy of Christ, it's here at the empty tomb where Christ is risen and he is Lord. But by saying he's not just one who raised from the dead, but the firstborn of the dead, it points to the fact that there's going to be a future resurrection where all people are going to stand before the risen Lord Jesus. Bow their knees and kneel before him and confess that he's Lord. We're going to see him in his glory. Look where this passage takes us. That he is eternally God the Son. He's the creator by him, through him, for him. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He is the risen Christ and he is the coming king. That in everything he might be preeminent. We don't use that word a lot. That he might be supreme. That he might be the most important. And it is so important that we pull off the road and stretch our legs and take a breath and just look to Jesus and say, this is who he is. It's important that we do this because we forget. We take our eyes off of Jesus and we we don't see him 
for the full glory of who he is. As a matter of fact, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians that this is why some people don't follow Jesus. Because their minds have been blinded so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. And some people who don't follow Jesus, it's because they've never seen Jesus for who he is. But even those of us who follow Jesus, it's so easy to get pulled away into to thinking lower thoughts of who Jesus is. And, and really, can we help it? Look at some of the stuff around us. There are so many times we see cheap. You know, I, when, when we, moved, we moved to California in 2002, and I moved to, to work with college students. I worked on the, uh, with a church and on a campus in, at University of Redlands. And I don't see this much anymore, but there were T-shirts back then that just said, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you remember those? <laughs> oh, you got one? No. <laughs> I was in a Christian bookstore and I saw a book called What Would Jesus Eat? So I flipped through it. In and out wasn't there, so I put it back. <laughs> it's got Bible verses on the cups. You, know, you can go to eBay and you can buy Answer Me Jesus. Okay, it's this little pink statue with the head of Jesus on the top, okay? And you ask it a question. Okay, how many of you, I grew up, you know, 80s was kind of my generation. Do you remember the magic eight ball? You remember that? You shake it up and then this dye kind of emerges out of the goo up against the glass. This, this is Answer Me Jesus. It's like magic eight ball Jesus. You shake him up, you turn him upside down, and the answer appears on his feet, okay? You can't make this stuff up. You can go to Amazon and buy a Jesus toaster, okay? Can you guess what this does? The heating elements are arranged so that when bread pops out, it's got the face of Jesus on every piece of toast. And sure enough, on the box that it comes in, I am, you got it, the bread of life. It's horrible. (laughs) But you pull off into this rest stop. And you realize Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not a novelty item. You've been able to look at the Old Testament and see glimpses of Jesus. You've seen the shadows that point to the reality. You've seen the supremacy of Christ a little bit in the Old Testament. There's going to be a seed of the woman that is going to crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be a descendant of David who will always reign on the throne. There's going to be a suffering servant, and by his stripes, you will be healed. This is all pointing to the supremacy of Christ. It's pointing to the glory and majesty of Jesus. But then you are going to move out of this rest stop, and you're going to move into not just passages that point to Christ, but passages that reveal Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You shall call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. He will be Emmanuel. God with us. You will see this 
old man Simeon taking this little baby in his arms and saying, he will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. When Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, you will hear the Father from heaven's booming voice, this is my beloved Son, and I am so pleased with him. You will see Jesus walk into the temple and grab the scroll and say, this is the year of the Lord's favor. I have come to preach the gospel to the poor, give sight to the blind, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the oppressed, and this is fulfilled right here in your presence. You will see his authority over nature as he calms the storms and walks on water. You will see that he reigns supreme over disease as the lame get up and walk and sick people are healed and the the, the blind are able to see. You will see his authority over demons as, as they just come flying out of people as Jesus speaks the word. You will see his authority, his supremacy over death itself as he stops funerals and says, little boy, get up and walk. Lazarus, come forth. You will ultimately see his power over death as Jesus himself walks out of his own tomb. He then ascends to the right hand of the Father where he sits down and he's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool that he can prop his feet on. Christ is supreme. You'll move into the book of Acts and you'll see Jesus send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, at the day of Pentecost in three thousand people turn to Christ. You're going to see Jesus standing up as Stephen is martyred, and you'll see Jesus showing up on the road to Damascus to say, Saul, you're not just persecuting the church, you're persecuting me, and I am sending you as an apostle to the Gentiles to stand before kings and rulers to proclaim what? The supremacy of Christ. And this is what he does. He writes letters. We can see the glory of God where? In the face of Christ. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will learn that it's Christ in you that is your hope and glory. And in Ephesians, you're going to see that you have been placed in Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places. And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours because we are in Christ, because he lavished his grace upon us. You're going to move into Hebrews and see that that it's no longer bringing the the blood of, of bulls and goats into the temple, but we have a supreme sacrifice, the sacrifice once for all. We have a high priest who doesn't stand there day after day offering sacrifice after sacrifice. He offered one sacrifice, and now he has been seated at the right hand of the Father because it was enough because Christ is supreme. And finally, eventually, you're going to get to the book of Revelation, and you're going to read of the Lamb who is on the throne, and thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands are going to be crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and wealth and honor and glory and majesty and dominion forever and ever. Christ is supreme. And this is why it's so important that we pull off the road and just remember this is who Christ is. It's not the cheap imitation that we've settled for. We need to look to Jesus. And when you understand his preeminence, these next words can almost be confusing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I understand that. He's fully God. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. I'm not going to take time to unpack this, but this is basically saying that not only does, does God reconcile people, 
who turned him, but all of creation will be made new. But look what happens. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. If you, if you knew nothing about the gospel, if you knew nothing about the word of God, you're reading this passage, these lofty words about Jesus. He's, he's supreme over all creation. Everything was made by him, through him, for him. He's holding all things together, the head of the church, the risen Christ, the coming king. And then you get to these words, blood and cross. And they don't fit. Why would this supreme God who has existed for all eternity, why would you even mention blood and cross? He goes on to talk about how we are reconciled. We're re- he's making peace. This is what reconciliation is, right? Making peace between two people who are in opposition to each other. And if we keep reading, this is where we begin to see why this should be the most important thing in our lives. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now think about it. I had an older brother. Anyone have a older brother? Did you sometimes not get along with your older brother? Okay. Did you occasionally get along with your older brother? (laughs) I learned something. When I lost my temper, which was often, and I broke something on my, when I wronged him, guess whose job it was to make it right? It's me, right? It's my allowance that's going to replace whatever I just broke. I mean, this is the way things work. If I wrong someone, if I sin against someone, it's my responsibility to make it right. Isn't this the Old Testament system? You sin, so what do you do? Well, get a goat. Go to the temple. Make it right. You're covered. Until what happens? Till you sin again. And you keep doing this over and over and over again. Sinning, making it right. Sinning, making it right. But did you see who reconciled? It's God taking the initiative through Christ to reconcile sinful people, making peace. And look what price it took. The blood of his cross. That Jesus, the supreme one, the pre-existent creator, head of the church, that he took our sins, the things we have done against God, the things that cause us, we were alienated. We were wrong in our thinking. We are hostile in minds. We were wrong in what we did, evil in our deeds. And he took all that and he placed it on Christ the supreme one, the preexistent God, the Son, took our sins on himself on the cross. But look what it accomplished. The passage begins by saying you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but you will be presented holy, blameless, above reproach. Because Christ is supreme, he accomplished on the cross what we could never accomplish on our own. Offering sacrifices would never bring about what Christ accomplished on the cross. And and it goes on to say, if indeed you continue in the faith. And and it gives the image of of like a house. Be, Be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. 
you know, we read that if you continue, it almost sounds like, well, in the past, we were reconciled to God. In the future, Christ is going to present us, but in the meantime, oh, it's up to us. We've got to continue. Problem is, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you read that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are kept by the power of God. Nothing can snatch us out of His hands. I like the way one theologian said it. He said, if it's true that all Christ followers will continue in the faith, if it's true that we will persevere to the end because we're kept by God, then it's also true that we must continue in the faith, that we must persevere to the end. We will because of the work of God, but we must continue as well. So here's the question. How do we stand stable, steadfast, not shifting from the gospel. We live in a time where we will face crises that will shake our foundation. We live in a time where we can be following Jesus so long it just gets old and stale and we lose all passion. We live in a culture that wants to sweep us away from the authority of the Word of God and the supremacy of Christ. So how do we continue in the faith? How do we stand stable and steadfast, not shifting in the midst of crises and routine and the current of our culture? I think it starts here. You pull off the road and you look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, if you're in a time of crisis in your life, this is where you begin to see this is the most important truth in our life is that Jesus is the most important. Because if, if you've gone through job loss or a difficult diagnosis, a untimely death, devastation from wildfires or natural disasters, you, you come to this place where you look to who Jesus is and you realize that he's still supreme and he's still on the throne. And the one who holds all things together can also hold us together in a time of crisis. And if the Christian life has gotten routine and kind of dull and lost some of its life, you can look to Jesus and realize that we're going to spend all eternity saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And something about just pondering Jesus as the Creator as the sustainer, as the risen Christ, the coming King, the one who in all things he is preeminent, as we just pour our hearts out in worship to him, we realize he is way bigger than, than we thought. And there's nothing stale or stagnant about the person of Christ, but he reigns supreme. And something about focusing on him and giving him worship revitalizes our own spirits, and we continue. Or if you're feeling the pull of the culture leading you away from the truth of Scripture, you come back to this and realize anything that's pulling you away <laughs> is a power that was created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He reigns above all of these. And all of this teaching, there is no higher truth than the truth of Scripture. And as these things start to pull us away, understand that Jesus reigns over that and we stay anchored in the supreme truth of the supreme Christ. The most important thing about each of us is that Christ is the most important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this privilege of just 
pulling off the road into the rest stop and just pondering Christ. Being reminded that Christ is supreme. He's preeminent. There is no other. And we just want to fall down and worship. We want to give our lives to you. We want to honor you. We understand there is no more important truth. There's no other rock on which we stand. We just give you the glory. And we are so humbled and honored that out of your rich mercy and great love for us, you have made us alive together in Christ. That the one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We are so undeserving but you have declared us to be worthy. And we give you all the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.